You've got adults who are actually behaving like children and you've got children who are expected to behave like adults. You know, children are expected, the barriers are taken down so that children can become sexualized or, you know, they're expected at quite an early age to, to think of themselves as having white privilege or being oppressed. And, and, and at the same time, you've got adults who are saying, well, you know, we, we can't cope with, with, um, with the demands that are put on us of life. So we'll just regress back into our childhoods and just have our, our tantrums, which is exactly what you see, isn't it, with a lot of young people now. It does feel like a tantrum when they can't get their own way. But I wonder whether it's more of a kind of societal change in the way that we parent, in the kind of expectations we have of children and the overprotectiveness of children. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Before we begin today's episode, I have a couple of exciting announcements I don't want you to miss out on. Number one, the film I am proud to be a part of, Affirmation Generation, is now available. This film does an incredible job of exposing the gender crisis, and we want it to reach therapists, doctors, parents, teachers, politicians, and anyone in a position to care. You can stream our early access edition of this film online anytime, as well as watch the trailer, learn more, or donate to the film, at affirmationgenerationmovie.com. Number two, I've started a new private online community for listeners of this podcast. You can find it at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. This new offering fulfills several needs. Over the past year, my reach has grown exponentially, and while it delights me to know that my podcast is now in the top 2.5% globally, the matching rise in the amount of emails and DMs I receive has been overwhelming. It's simply too much for one person to handle, and while I care about my listeners, staring at a screen typing words at them for free feeds neither my stomach nor my soul. I had to create some kind of filter to make my engagement feel sustainable and nourishing to me. And fortunately, this is exactly what Locals was designed to do for independent content creators like myself. When you join my Locals community as a supporting member for $8 a month, you get to submit questions that I will answer in members-only Q&A live streams. I'm also considering offering behind-the-scenes early access to new podcasts as they're being recorded. Plus, of course, you get to meet light-minded people who share your interests in an online environment that's free of ads, bullies, and trolls. With Locals, you also get to choose how much you reveal about yourself on your profile so you can be undercover or out in the open. And you get to select whether your posts in my community are visible to anyone who drops by or only to other committed members. If you'd like to support me at a higher level, you can become a premium member for $24 a month, which allows you to privately message me, and I will prioritize responding to premium members' direct messages. I think this is a great solution that is designed to meet everyone's needs. 
Although we are just getting started and this community is currently small and new, we've already got some great people on board, including thoughtful therapists, concerned parents, and free-thinking, politically homeless people. Please come along and check out my growing community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. You can get your first month free with promo code GRANDFATHER. Make the most of your trial membership by asking a question in the latest Q&A thread, and I will provide a live-streamed answer you can join me for or watch later. What have you got to lose? All right, now on to today's episode. Today, my guest is Dr. Carol Sherwood. She is a semi-retired British clinical psychologist, a member of Critical Therapy Antidote, a member of the Advisory Council for Don't Divide Us, and one of the authors of one of the chapters in Cynical Therapies, Perspectives on the Anti-Therapeutic Nature of Critical Social Justice, which is available now on Amazon, ebook, or paperback. It's also in my bookshop. And uh, Christine Seifen, who's been on my podcast before, is also part of Critical Therapy Antidote, has also authored a chapter. You might also recognize some of the other authors of chapters in that book, including Lisa Marciano and Stella O'Malley. I'm excited to see what Carol and I get into today. So, Carol, welcome. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you very much for inviting me. All right. It's a pleasure to have you. So can you give a a sort of brief background of your career as a therapist? Sure. Well, I came late to uh, therapy, actually. I was in my late 40s when I finally managed to get onto a clinical psychology training course uh, here in the UK. Um, And I specialised in physical health conditions in particular. Um, When I graduated, uh, I had a particular interest in physical health, having worked for a a doctor's surgery um, as a manager for some years and seeing a lot of people really struggling uh, to cope psychologically with their physical health. So I decided I wanted to specialise in that and in trauma, because I'm also interested in trauma. And so I got a job working at um, an inner city hospital in London uh, in the clinical health psychology department. So I work with people with HIV. I work with people with chronic pain, uh, with chronic fatigue, uh, with sexual assault. Uh, That was another speciality. And the final years um, of my work with the uh, National Health Service was with people with cancer and in palliative care. So it's quite quite a broad broad spectrum of physical health difficulties. And I believe you must have been very good at it, Carol, because before we started recording, we just got into this conversation. And before I knew it, I was about to tear up. We were talking about my chronic health stuff and you were just stepping into such a nurturing role, talking me through the chronic health stuff like you knew. So I believe your patients were very lucky to have you. Oh, thank you very much, Stephanie. Such a pleasure to be here. And you worked for the NHS. I did indeed. That's right. Um, I did leave the NHS. When I left the NHS, I retired from the NHS in 2013 and I set up a private practice. So I continued to keep my hand in for some years and I do still do some supervision. Um, But I found myself sort of dragged back into the world of of psychology since I've become so concerned about what is going on now with the the, um, capture of the profession Um, by clinical social justice. Um, And that's how I came to write a chapter in Val's book, Cynical Therapies. 
So before we start recording, you introduced me to a term I'd never heard before, and it sort of tickled me. Um, I, I wish I could say I was surprised to hear <laughs> of a trend like this, but but I'm really not, um, because of course this is the next frontier. Um, this critical social justice stuff has been undermining foundational principles like meritocracy, which we have a listener question about a little bit later, um, and like equality, like colorblindness, all these sort of basic foundational principles that up until recently, most people agreed were good things or at least mm -hmm. morally neutral. And uh, so it doesn't at all surprise me to know that the next frontier and maybe the mission all along is undermining the goodness mm -hmm. of sanity itself. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that there's a term called sanies, and I'd never heard of this. Can, can you tell us about sanies? Well, do you know, I, I've just learned this from Christine Seifel, actually, who was who was on your podcast quite recently. And uh, she says that the, the latest trend uh, amongst young people is to view people who are sane um, as somehow, I suppose it's in the same category as everything else that is normative is viewed. So, um, you know, if you're heterosexual, that's a dominant group and that's wrong. Um, you know, if you're a man, that's a dominant group and that's wrong. If you're white and so on and so forth. So now we have this category of sanies. So if you don't have a mental health problem, you know, you're a dominant group that, um, that has to be dismantled or there's something wrong with you. Um, and this doesn't surprise me, Stephanie. I'm sure it doesn't surprise you. It does feel like a sort of natural progression. I heard a um, very interesting talk given by a psychiatrist at the Maudsley um, in London uh, psychiatric um, clinic. And she was talking about young people who come to see her claiming that they have some mental health problem. It could be ADHD, it could be autism. Absolutely convinced they've self-diagnosed, you know, this is what they have and they're sure. And so they've come for a psychiatric assessment to get the label attached to their identity. And they are then told, well, actually, you don't meet the criteria. You know, there's nothing wrong with you. You, you know, we've assessed you and you don't have ADHD. And these young people are getting tremendously upset because the the whole idea of having this mental illness is part of their identity. And a lot of this is to do with social media. Um, and the young people will go on to something like TikTok and, and they will find others who also identify as perhaps having, let's say, ADHD. Um, and they'll get into a group and they'll get a real sense of belonging to this group. You know, they all share this identity of being sort of somehow not quite right. Um, mentally unwell, in need of support, feeling, you know, like victims who need to be taken care of. It makes them feel special to be part of this group until, of course, they leave the group. Um, and then they suffer the sort of problems that a lot of people do, like detransitioners, which you will know well about, um, Stephanie, that they, they're just rejected. Um, they become pariahs. They're silent. They're told they don't belong. So it, it, it feels like it's following the same sort of pattern, you know, that you somehow have to be a victim. You have to be special. You have to be somebody who stands out from the crowd. And now those of us who consider ourselves to be sane are the ones who are considered abnormal. It is an extraordinary reversal, isn't it? To sound like a very 
to say a very cliche therapist thing, there's a lot to unpack there. Oh. And <laughs> one one of many starting points is that it strikes me as, as a very privileged position to take to disregard sanity or to, to vilify sanity because the only way that works is if you are surrounded with sane people who put up with you because if you're insane, whatever that means, if you're not able to function, you must be taken care of. You must be taken care of by people who can pull their own weight and yours. There must be a functioning economy, a functioning household to bring you food and shelter and medicine and all the things that you rely on. So it is insane that they haven't really thought this through, thought through what happens when you reject and vilify sanity or anything else that um, the world depends on yes. in order for you to have the things that you rely upon. It's ironic. It's a, it's a very bitter irony that the people who are doing this are supposedly railing against this idea of privilege because it's just about the most privileged position to take. It's, I believe, Robert Henderson would call that a luxury belief. That's right. Absolutely, Stephanie, that it is a luxury belief. And I think it it's so difficult, isn't it, to know how to how to how to deal with this problem because we do need society needs to function. Um, I think it, it reminds me a little bit of uh, what was happening during COVID pandemic. You know, when people were locking down, we all relied on supermarket staff carrying on working. We all relied on couriers to bring us our packages that we could no longer go out and shop for. And without that infrastructure, the whole of society would grind to a halt. And I'm, I'm quite interested in this idea of luxury beliefs. The other aspect which, which I find quite intriguing, uh, Stephanie, is I listened to, is it Helena Kirshner? Yes. On Gen, she's in Genspect, I think, isn't she? Mm -hmm. I heard her talking about how one of the reasons that she decided or that the kind of influenced her in, in going down the path of transitioning to become a man was that she considered herself to be a privileged white woman. <laughs> and she found that so uncomfortable position to be in that in a way, it seemed the ideal thing to do was was to become a victim, to become one of those minority groups, you know, so that she would no longer be attacked for being a privileged woman. And I, I wonder if there is a an element of this, you know, that you, if you are one of those dominant groups or in a member of one of those dominant groups, the only way that you can protect yourself is by becoming a victim, to see yourself as somebody who's not part of that dominant group anymore. Um, and that helps you to feel special. It helps you to, to be looked after. As you say, there is a sort of element here, isn't there, of not wanting to grow up, not wanting to be responsible, a responsible adult, uh, expecting other people to do everything for you. <laughs> but Life doesn't work like that. Well, it does for some people, but it isn't like that, is it? And it leads to resentment in those who are having to look after those people. Um, it perpetuates the drama triangle forever, keeps exactly. someone perpetually in victim mode, another in rescuer, and 
Exactly. And that there is a sort of rescuing element to this as well, isn't there? Those people who, who are trying to say, oh, these poor minority people, this is they're so disadvantaged and we should be doing this. But you just think, have you got some sort of rescue fantasy? I mean, I'm not a psychoanalyst, I don't know, but it does make me think in, in that way that they're sort of helping to perpetuate this myth that there's something wrong with this person, or, or there's something wrong with being sane. There's something wrong with being an ordinary, normal, whatever that means, person. I'm seeing all these branches, all these ways we could go. There's uh, a incentives and secondary gain. Behavioral psychology is something we could examine. I've, I've heard requests from listeners that we talk about secondary gain more because this is a very useful concept yes. this day and age. Okay. I'm also thinking about how there seems to be a wish to regress to this infantile state of dependency, right? In which your every need is predicted and cared for by this all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful being. And um, and what the, the infant can be, be free to express itself in any way. The infant can rage and tantrum, kick and scream, and it will still be cared for. So when I think about the sort of infantile state, I think back to my conversation, for example, with Laura Wiley Haynes on developmental trauma. And she talks a lot about the importance of the mother-infant bond and nurturance and secure attachment. And so there's there's a potential direction we could examine here about how maybe the lack of secure bond and adequate time with caregivers in early life is creating this foundation mm -hmm. that leaves people with a, a void where they're craving. Maybe they didn't get enough. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they didn't complete that infantile state uh, mm -hmm. to their satisfaction enough to grow out of it. So maybe there's a, a longing to regress to something that was incomplete there. Um, I don't know. Pick either of those directions that you want to go in, Carol. I think that is hard. I mean, I, I'm quite interested in um, Lukianoff and Haidt's uh, take on this and, and the idea of um, children not actually being given the uh, freedom to, to make mistakes, to fail, you know, to, to, to fall down off their bikes and pick themselves up again and, and carry on. That, that there's an overprotective thing going on in parenting that, you know, you don't allow your child to fail. And I do wonder, you, you end up with a generation of people who are not used to that. They're being, they're being used to being praised and told that whatever they do, they are special. They do, you know, they're, they're really important. You end up with really quite an entitled generation who don't know how to cope when they go out into the wider world. And perhaps it's, it's at that point that they think, you know, I, I just can't cope with this. I mean, I, it's like when they go to university, they're expecting universities to look after them as if they're at home. You know, they're meant to be safe places for them rather than places of learning and development and growth. And at the same time, and it's interesting, I was, I was having a conversation uh, with, with some people from Don't Divide Us about this when we were talking about indoctrination in schools and things like this. And the idea that... Um, Adults, alongside this, you've got adults who are actually behaving like children, and you've got children who are expected to behave like adults. You know, children are expected, the barriers are taken down so that children can become sexualized, or, you know, they're expected at quite an early age to, to think of themselves as having white privilege or being oppressed. And, and 
and at the same time, you've got adults who are saying, well, you know, we, we can't cope with, with, um, with the demands that are put on us of life. So we'll just regress back into our childhoods and just have our, our tantrums, which is exactly what you see, isn't it, with a lot of young people now. They, it does feel like a tantrum when they can't get their own way. So I, I don't know whether it is, I'm interested, I, I understand what you're saying about insecure attachments and so on, and maybe for some individuals that is the case, but I wonder whether it's more of a kind of societal change uh, in the way that we parent, um, in the kind of expectations we have of children, and the overprotectiveness of children. What and maybe think? that's linked, because when we when we think of secure attachment, part mm. of part of the natural process when when an infant really gets enough security is that then from there there's freedom to explore there's a natural progression there's there's a satiation that takes place sort of like if you have a really nourishing healthy well-rounded delicious meal you reach mm. the point where you feel full a mm. lot sooner than you do if you're eating something with you know addictive chemicals it's junk food that it doesn't really satisfy mm. So mm. there's, I think, a, a satiation process that naturally occurs when those early bonds unfold in the in the most ideal way. Mm -hmm. And so secure attachment makes room for both closeness and autonomy. And, mm -hmm. and that's the ideal foundation we want. Mm -hmm. um, so the baby says, okay, I've had enough of mom now. I'm curious about what's going on over there, right? I'm going to crawl over there yeah. and I'm not going to worry about mom because I know I can always crawl back to her. So I think there's there's a link there. And I wonder if this way that we, you know, there's so much economic pressure on families mm -hmm. to provide mm -hmm. two incomes. There's so much mm -hmm. pressure on mothers to separate from their babies and put them in care early on. If maybe the, the bonding isn't taking place well enough to then allow for the natural progression to that space of, of freedom and strength and autonomy where the child can go and explore the mm -hmm. world and can rely on their own resources. So it's that's where I'm wondering if there's kind of that connection there and if some of the the coddling of um, the, the parenting trends, and I would say not just parenting, but child rearing and educational trends, mm -hmm. maybe some of that coddling is a reaction to the fact that there's something cut off too early in that bond. Maybe both the parent and the child are longing to have that connection back. And so then things, then then it becomes sort of increasingly age inappropriate. I'm just speculating here about some general trends, but I could see those being connected. And I also think that, you know, when it comes to the social incentives, I don't want to blame parents. I want to look at how the sort of the culture is because um, our, our culture is set up in such a way that a parent cannot just encourage their child to go outside and play freely without, you know, potentially being accused of child abuse or neglect. That's so true. And, you know, everything that you're saying, I'm kind of aligning with this because I was thinking along the same lines that um, I was listening to a podcast with Mary Harrington. I don't know whether you've come across. Oh, her. yeah, she's I've gone on a little Mary Harrington binge lately. Yeah, I can understand it. Um, and it's a very, very interesting uh, line that she's taking here. And it's something I have quite a lot of sympathy with, although it's dodgy territory for some people, I think. You know, I think back to um, my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation before the contraceptive pill existed. Um, my grandmother had, I don't think it was eight or nine children. 
Um, and th this was what you did. <laughs> you know, this is what happened. And she had to stay at home and she had to look after her children. And I think once the contraceptive pill arrived, it, it, it did actually liberate those women who chose to take it. It really liberated us to be able to go out and get a job like your partner, like your husband, you could do that. But of course, once you have children, you know, there's a biological reality to being a woman, isn't there? You, 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 you give birth, you have a child. And when you have that child, you, you have to nurture that child. And this is where your idea of, of the secure attachment comes in. If you're in a family where, you know, you're struggling to pay the mortgage, you know, your husband's maybe not on a great wage. Um, there's a lot of pressure, isn't there, to say, well, maybe, you know, maybe if mum will look after the child for us, we could go out or maybe we can find a child and I can go out and get a job. And this could be where some of these problems arise that, you know, you, you, you not again, not to blame anybody. It's just the trends that we're talking about. Um, I think that there is also something about women, the kind of feminism, uh, certainly the feminism that I considered my, myself to be supporting, which was right back in the 70s, I suppose, was very much about trying to find equality for women in the workplace in particular, and, and trying to, to, to think about women not as uh, playthings or objects, but as people in their own right who are res you know, to be respected um, and there was something really exciting about that. But I do wonder whether it's got to the point now where the, the idea of actually being a mum at home and looking after the children is not something that is greatly valued in our society. I mean, you're certainly not paid for it. Um, and I, I think there are a lot of women who would love to be able to stay at home and look after their children, but either they can't afford it or they feel a lot of pressure from peers you know, to be worthwhile you have to go out and get a job. So I, I am wondering whether this is playing a part, isn't it, in, in what is happening in society. How are you sleeping? Sleep is a foundation of mental and physical health, equally important to nutrition and exercise, yet it's often the first thing to go during times of stress. Good sleep can help alleviate depression and anxiety symptoms, maintain a healthy weight and metabolism, protect your heart, and even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. Yet still, a third of Americans struggle with sleep, and temperature is one of the main reasons. Before I got an eight sleep, I was already an expert in sleep hygiene and practiced what I preached to my clients. But I would still wake up overheated in the middle of the night and unable to fall back asleep for one or two hours. Adjusting the air temperature and blankets was not enough. The mattress itself was keeping me hot. But now I'm sleeping soundly through the night and waking up refreshed thanks to my 8Sleep Pod Pro cover. The Pod Pro cover by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. If you'd like to be more patient with your children, more emotionally stable with your partner, a fitter athlete, or more efficient at work, take it from me, a mental health professional. 
Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being and the lives of everyone you touch. Go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout to start sleeping cool this summer with up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And yes, to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. Well, and with these trends, there there's a trending toward having children at a later age. And uh, I recently had an episode come out with Jennifer Lal on surrogacy. And I, I was reflecting on how um, my experiences were that as as a woman in my 20s, my, my mm-hmm. fertility was this overly powerful thing to be afraid of, this thing that could, you know, change my life in an instant. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm not going to get into too much my personal circumstances, but I think for many women, that is the experience where mm-hmm. with the 20s, whatever form of contraception they use, they're very grateful for. Mm-hmm. And there's this um, sense of, thank goodness, we're so liberated from our bodies. And there's a sense there's not a sense that um, fertility is a precious thing until mm-hmm. that women reach that point where maybe mm-hmm. they've put off having babies. Maybe they put off dating in a very marriage-minded way until they're mm-hmm. suddenly at an age where um, now they really need to find a husband and they realize that, that that's that's a process. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, yeah. so, there, so for many women, there's this sort of sudden biological clock thing and, and they've been feeling like they have all this extra time. And then they want to start having babies, and they start having having babies at a time that um, they they can't take their fertility for granted, and they're potentially even dependent on an industry that stands to profit mm-hmm. tremendously off of their difficulties with fertility. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder how much this sort of you know this illusion of this extended adolescence of the twenties, and Meg Jay writes about this in the defining decade as well, although not from the stance of child rearing and all that, but more from the stance of how your twenties are a really important time for building your future. But I think that we we sort of have learned to treat the twenties, especially here in the US. I'm not sure about the UK. My read on the UK is that the average British person is five years more mature than mm-hmm. the average American of their same age. I've met British musicians who were so talented. I mean, I've been to an amazing <laughs> concert and I'm hanging out with the band afterward and they're all like 25. And I'm like, but you write soulful lyrics <laughs> as if you've known heart like true loss. Um but so my read is that the, the British British people are just more mature in general. But I think especially here in, in the U.S. and maybe you can share your observations too. There is this sort of extended adolescence of the twenties, mm-hmm. and and I say this as somebody who's actually quite nostalgic about the wonderful time I had in my twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just looking at pictures the other day, very grateful for that time in my life. So I'm not I'm not saying it's all bad, but um, mm-hmm. but we do get to live in this time that is it's it's relatively novel in human history mm-hmm. for especially women in our 20s to just be able to think, oh, someday maybe I'll have a family, but I don't have to think about that now. Um, no, that's very true. I think the the other thing that I'm noticing more and more, and I have actually seen it in the UK, is a reluctance to have children because you feel that you're harming the planet. Absolutely. And and I think this this is another element. I think there are various things going on here. I think there's also 
which you see in the, in the trans debate, a lot of young women are being fearful of their bodies, fearful of puberty, fearful of becoming women because of what they might experience and because of fears of what's happening in pornography and so on and so forth. But I think there's also a, a group of, of young women who think, is it right to have a child or bring a child into this world? And, and that's another curious thing for me. I, I'm just thinking, well, what I mean, most women do experience that biological clock at some point. Um, why would you choose to go against that? So there seem to be lots of different reasons not to want to grow up, not to want to have children, not to just um, embrace that biological reality of your body. Well, I was one of those women, Carol. And, um, you know, I was very environmentally minded from yeah. a young age and I grew up with a very dystopian sense of the world. So I, I came from Los Angeles, from a, a working class mixed race neighborhood where um, the LA riots happened when I was a child. So I had a, a quite dystopian experience that, that was very formative, you know, ashes falling from the sky, explosions, looting, all of this happening right around mm -hmm. me. And, um, and from that followed all the racial bullying, you know, and this is how I learned about intergenerational trauma from experience mm -hmm. too, is that I was mm -hmm. the scapegoat as a child for the history of race relations that had created the Rodney King riots. Um, and so I've been witnessing this for a long time. And between that and then sort of channeling my own trauma into my environmental activism, I, I, was, I was an anarchist punk teenager. I mean, I was out there marching. I would have been one of these kids these days, you know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I absolutely had that sense. Mm -hmm. And I rode my bike in protest. I didn't learn to drive until I was like 20. Mm -hmm. um, I and, and that was also difficult because when you're riding your bike in a, in a congested car-driven city, you, mm -hmm. you end up feeling a lot of animosity and anger towards the aggressive yeah. drivers and the pollution. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, so I was, I was pretty radical in that way. And I saw the world through that particular lens. And I, I feel like I really understand it. I have a lot of compassion for it because some people do, do grow up in uh, worlds or situations where they're being exposed to things that make them feel like the apocalypse is, is impending. And, you know, part of how I dealt with my trauma was a form of sublimation where rather than feeling like this um, vulnerable victim that I truly was on some level where the world has, has the power to crush and destroy me. Mm -hmm. Rather than doing that, I, I sort of um, transcended it and found the strength of, you know, I, I'm not a victim. I'm somebody who fights for other people who are victims too. And, mm -hmm. um, and I, I defend the weak and I defend the helpless animals and the, the environment. And I, you know, I was very mm -hmm. like misanthropic in that, but yeah. there, there was a grandiosity in it, but there was also some virtue in it. And, um, and that was part of how I coped. And so, you know, when you have that worldview and you expose yourself to this vision of the world that is bleak, where, where you, you learn about climate change, you learn about pollution mm -hmm. and environmental destruction, biodiversity loss, all of these things, it really does feel like, um, the world is ending and, yes. and it is hard to en envision a stable enough world that it feels like a secure place to have children. Mm -hmm. I think daddy issues definitely played a role for me and probably do for a lot of people having um, 
you know, a sense if your parents divorced or if they were never married or if you were abandoned or abused, Mm -hmm. that also gives a sense that I don't live in a safe enough world that I could find a partner to have children with and trust that person Mm -hmm. to stick around and provide for me, right? Mm -hmm. It takes a secure foundation to grow up in a world where you feel like that's even a possibility for you. So, you know, from all of these things in my own personal experience, I can relate so much to any young person who feels like, what kind of world is this to bring children into? I don't know what kind of future they would have. They, My children would probably just be more of a burden on the planet. I don't know that I could count on someone to stick around. And, you know, for me, I... I healed from all that very gradually in my own journey, and now I'm part of a blended family, and I found that that's a happy medium for me. Um, and I don't, I don't know that I could, um, I don't know that I could honestly say to someone who feels that way that that it doesn't make perfect sense. I think it is certainly. Um, a jaded lens to look through, but it's an understandable one. And I I would want to sort of help that person understand how they came to those conclusions. But I would also, if, if I were in a position to, you know, counsel or advise someone who was thinking like that, I would also want to examine their sense of the preciousness of life, um, Mm -hmm. the beauty of life and, and also how brief our time is. And, and for women, especially how narrow that fertile window really is that's right that's right no that's that's really interesting uh hearing that experience that you've had stephanie i think and it helps me to understand i mean i can remember i suppose because i am quite ancient now um going through experiences like this myself because when i was a young woman there were threats of nuclear armageddon i remember Mm. going um actually i went on a cnd uh, march with my son when he was little. And so I, I do have sympathy with this. Um, but but like you say, I think it's it's trying to unpack it a little bit and just thinking, okay, what what if you had the child who helped to make this better? What what if you had a child who actually contributed to this and was able to to make a difference? Um, that's just one argument. But I think we do need to have sympathy with young people. I, I think that not only the, the climate change, but also they're in a rougher place than I was at their age. Um, you know, I was I lived in a world, okay, there was this fear of this nuclear threat. But you could afford to save up for a house, you know, you could afford to buy somewhere for yourself, uh, you know, you could expect to um, you know, sort of have, I don't know, uh, some sense of ambition, some sense of actually getting somewhere, getting on the ladder. And I, I think a lot of young people feel deprived of that now, you know, and, and it must be quite a hopeless situation to feel in. But it's it's how do you manage that hopelessness? And 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 you're coming up with some ideas yourself, aren't you, about how you might try and explore that with a with a young person. I think another contributing factor is the the ratio or the proportion of how as you're growing up, you're exposed to the evils of the world um, Mm. or the terrors of the horrors um, Mm. in relation to how you're exposed to strength and ingenuity and how your own skill development is scaffolded. So Mm. I think one of the things that can be fairly crippling for a lot of young people today is that there is no limit to what they are exposed to, but 
it's it's so disproportionate to the experiences, the formative experiences that those people are having to help instill a strength of their own strength, mm-hmm. capability, and so on. And and so what if we could manage to only expose young people to these things that are very difficult to learn about and overwhelming in proportion to the way we were scaffolding the development of their problem-solving skills. Mm. Mm. I think that would that would have a much different feel. Yeah, I, I think so. It, it feels like there's a there's an absence of that scaffolding, an absence of that, you know, helping young people to problem solve and and to build resilience, for want of a, another word. And I I do think there is an absence of that and. Um, I'm not quite sure how we go about introducing that because I think another problem very much is social media. You know, we've got into information overload now. And I think even grown-ups find it overwhelming. I, I know I do. You know, if I spend too much time um, on social media, I, I find I lose touch with the real world and I have to just go outside, go and chat to my neighbours you know, go and dig the garden, something that brings me, that grounds me, that brings me back to the real world. Because I think you can be carried off in in a land of fantasy and horror and begin to believe, almost like an avatar taking part in that horrible world. And I don't know that young people are well, very young people, I mean, talking about teenagers, are able to separate themselves from that world of social media um, and be able to step back a little bit. Because I think, you know, I am lucky I grew up without it. And so um, I don't have that experience of being drawn down that rabbit hole. But um, I think this is a whole nother problem, isn't it, for young people having to restrict their... um, their own usage of social media. Um, Absolutely. But it's so rewarding. It's so, it, well, for a lot of people, it's very rewarding, isn't it? Well, it gives you that that false little dopamine burst. But I'm thinking so, about my, my stepsons. They're very physically active and mm-hmm. uh, engineering-minded. Mm-hmm. And uh, they really like setting up um, climbing gear and uh, zip lines and things like that. And we had this experience where we took them to a ropes course. And it was a challenging ropes course. I personally have too much of a fear of heights to have attempted anything like that. Um, but also the, the strength and balance and coordination and um, those skills as well are required by something like that. And, and we got to witness our boys doing the ropes course, doing circles around kids their age. There were other kids their age who were still within the first, let's say, 100 yards or 50 yards of, of the ropes course, um, who were unsure in their bodies, seemed to lack core strength, coordination, you know, sort of cross-body, cross-hemispheric skills. And I could see them really struggling and just feeling such a lack of confidence. Mm. And um, and then I saw our kids just passing them, doing, I mean, they went around the ropes course like four times. And I was thinking, thank goodness for all the things that, that their parents are doing well mm. to help them be practicing those skills. 
on a daily basis so they have that confidence, those those skills. And mm-hmm. um, and I thought about these other kids I was seeing, and of course I didn't know them personally, I didn't, I didn't talk to their families or anything, but I thought, I wonder how much time those kids spend yeah. playing video games. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, I almost kind of wanted to let it be a warning to the boys. Like, this is why it's so good that you guys get out and do all these physical things. Mm-hmm. Because if you spent all that time just inside playing video games, mm-hmm. you would be lacking this confidence in your body, too. Mm-hmm. I also find that this is an important part of um, the, the process for parents who are trying to help their kids get out of the gender ideology is, yeah. um, you know, having some kind of project. A garden, a truck to fix, a wall to paint, um, you know, anything where you get real skills, learning a new recipe. Um, kids develop so much pride and joy and confidence from those little things. I think so. That's right. And again, it's just taking them out of that unreal world and into something that is tangible and something that they can succeed at and feel, you know, Oh, I can do this. You know, I've just made a cupcake. This is great. You know, um, I think that's so important. And I do, it, it puts me in mind, Stephanie, when I used to work with people with um, HIV, uh, very stigmatizing illness, and they would come to almost view themselves as their HIV. I am my HIV. And I wonder if there's a similarity here. I am my trans identity. I am a trans person. And it's really difficult to actually see outside of that. And as soon as you start to think, well, you know, what other things can you do? What other things are you interested in? What other sort of hobbies or whatever, what, whatever, what else is there about you other than this one thing that you're identifying with? And it was you know, tremendously uh, helpful intervention because pe- you know, once you engage with people and they begin to think, well, actually, maybe, you know, I used to, um, I used to enjoy uh, cricket or I used to enjoy. Um, you know, trying out different recipes to feed my kids. And and you once they start engaging with that, you begin to see, with, you know, you're much more than your illness. You're much more than this one thing that you identify with. So th- this sound, does sound like a way forward if you can kind of encourage parents to, to talk to their children in these ways. You know, what, what other things are you interested in? I think for a we lot of people, the, yeah. the identity stuff, fills a void where yeah. there's not a sense of self and mm-hmm. having hobbies or skills is um it it certainly plays a role in developing a sense of self and identity but of course it's also easy to foreclose on on any identity right i am a soccer mm-hmm. player mm-hmm. i am a flutist yeah. i i am a punk or a goth or a jock or you know, that's that's also um, a place where it's easy to sort of collapse prematurely and, and mm-hmm. latch on to one thing as an anchor rather than acknowledging that you don't have a stable sense of self yet. But I, I don't mm-hmm. I don't think that we normalize enough in a, as a culture that um, it's okay not to know who you are mm-hmm. yet. It's okay to uh, develop a sense of self over time and for that to be a struggle mm-hmm. and leave you with a sense of void or insecurity or incompleteness o- over time. We don't tell people that that's okay. And mm-hmm. we don't sort of walk them through the process of identity development. I think there's a lot of encouragement of youth from all sides to 
to cling to some form of identity, no matter how mm -hmm. shoddy or, or plastic or fickle mm -hmm. it might be. Mm. Yeah, this is who I am. This is this is me, even though it doesn't quite fit. And, and I do wonder whether this where this comes from, Stephanie, because I'm just trying to think, you know, back to my own childhood. And I can remember experimenting with different things and, you know, wondering about I think most young people wonder about their sexuality. I mean, I went to an all-girls school and I think, you know, that's a rather rarefied, unusual atmosphere to be in. And but it's it's being able to have the confidence to just say, okay, well, this is just this is just the way it is at the moment, and try things out. And I wonder whether this fear of experimentation and this clinging to the first thing that comes along is part of what we were discussing earlier. You know, this idea that you can't it's you're not confident enough to allow this thing to happen to you. you you're you're really frightened you're kind of looking for protection you're looking for somebody to rescue you you don't have the confidence in your own uh, ability to be who you are or find mm -hmm. out who you are well there's a lot of emphasis on identity and labels but not so much on character mm -hmm. and and character is this ongoing process it's a, it's a part of yourself that you builds like mm. you're adding to it every mm -hmm. day over time through your actions through how you choose to handle the hardships that come to you through whatever path you may have chosen right mm. so maybe your identity is a soccer player but your character is what do you how do you respond when your teammate fails mm. Mm. how do you how do you respond when you mm. win or lose um yeah. and and that's something that um, is hard to fake. Yeah. So when it comes to character, I, I want to kind of, um, you know, I think it loops back to some of the other concepts we've touched on, like incentives and secondary gain and, and also meritocracy. And maybe this is a good time for me to bring in this question for you mm. um, from one of our listeners, unless there was something more you were going to say on that first. No, sure. You carry on, Stephanie. It's okay. Fine. So as anyone who's been paying attention knows by now, I have a locals community. You can find it at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. You can get your first month free with promo code grandfather. And after that, it's only $8 a month to stick around. As a member of my locals community, you get to meet other people who are listeners of this show and have private discussions in a space that's protected from ads, bullies, and trolls. You also get to ask questions of my guests like Dr. Carol, and uh, questions for me, which I will respond to in periodic members-only exclusive live stream Q&As. And of course, you can join for the live stream, but the but it'll be recorded and available to you after any time. So if you ever want to ask me a question or ask a question of my future guests, please consider joining our locals community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. So today's question comes from one of our locals members uh, because I'm in the habit of letting my members know who my upcoming guests are going to be. And so if you want that privilege in the future, please join. Today's question for Dr. Carol Sherwood comes from Christo. Thank you again, Christo, for supplying so many excellent questions and helping getting the conversation started in my tiny but growing community. So Christo says, Dr. Sherwood, in the United States, we have a current presidential candidate named Vivek Ramaswamy, who is a very successful entrepreneur and author of the books Woke Incorporated, 2021, and Nation of Victims, 2022. Critical of things like CRT and environmental, social, and corporate governance, ESG, Ramaswamy is a strong proponent of meritocracy. 
What do you think about meritocracy? Does meritocracy have a shadow side? Who wins and who loses? Mm, that's an interesting question, Krista. Thank you. I like the idea of the shadow side. This is something that mm. I'm learning a bit more about, a Jungian approach. And uh, I think that's an interesting idea. Yeah, I mean, I have heard of his work um, and I am also aware of the criticisms of, of meritocracy um, and how it's coming in for a hard time now. But I guess what, what I wonder about is without it, without that um, ambition to become or to make something of your life, where is the, where is the incentive to even get out of bed in the morning? <laughs> You know, we're, we're, we are, we're creatures, you know, that need uh, a reason to get out of bed and to do something with our lives. And I think there is a sort of reward that we get, isn't there, from that behaviour. If, if you go to work and you work really hard and your boss sees you working hard and says, you've done a really good job, I'd like to offer you a promotion, you get a reward from that, which means that you're going to work even harder to get further up the tree if that, if that is what you want to do. But I think there is probably a shadow side to meritocracy, isn't there? And, and I think what uh, CRT or proponents of CRT are arguing is that, you know, it's not fair on those who don't have the opportunities, who, who can't actually get onto that ladder because of, you know, their experiences in life which have held them back, um, you know, whether that's racism or, or homophobia or whatever it might be. And so that's probably the, the shadow side, isn't it? That, that it kind of holds people back who cannot get anywhere near that ladder to begin to climb it. But I do wonder that there's also something here about the meaning of life and the purpose of life. And it makes me think of Viktor Frankl, you know, and the importance of finding meaning in life. And if there is no way in which you can advance yourself and you're just told, for example, on the basis of immutable characteristics, maybe you're white and you're a man and therefore you're excluded because you have to go down for somebody else to come up. What is your life going to be like? Why would you bother? Isn't there a kind of a sense of hopelessness in this? Uh, the sense, well, I'm never going to get anywhere, so why should I bother? And do you know what, what occurs to me? And, and sorry, Christopher, I'm going slightly off, off um, piece here. But I'm thinking about something that I was reading about earlier, which is about transactivists, men who feel that as men, they should be ashamed because they are men. They are white men. And white men are now, I mean, they're accused of toxic masculinity. They're told they're too dominant, that they're abusive. There's a whole load of uh, you know, sort of criticisms of men. And I wonder whether this is the kind of effect that you get in a society that is actually downplaying meritocracy and actually saying, do you know, you're why should we bother with you? Because you're a dominant male who isn't worth anything. So what would what would you do? You'd feel hopeless. You'd feel angry. You'd feel resentful. And maybe, I mean, going back to our earlier discussion, maybe there's something about feeling quite angry towards women because women seem to have it all. You know, women are the ones who are valued. Women are put into the top jobs. Um, and and it just seems to me that there's a kind of unhealthy. <laughs> Um, aspect to this, that if you do away with you know the, the ability of people to 
to strive, to benefit from that striving and to get that reward, they will become resentful, angry, hopeless people, won't they? As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar, and it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving your cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. I love that. I think it's very well said. I'm I'm a big fan of meritocracy and mm-hmm. and I, I love the the steel manning that we are doing of the meritocratic mm-hmm. position by investigating is there a shadow, is there a downside? What would what would mm-hmm. our ideological opponents say about this? Mm-hmm. Um personally, however, I am a big fan of meritocracy. I think it's the best thing we have. I think it is i I don't think there is a better system than meritocracy. Mm-hmm. Um because meritocracy rewards and incentivizes, as you said, ambition mm-hmm. and aspiration, mm-hmm. hard work and skill, mm-hmm. cultivating talents. Um, when I first started blogging, one of my earliest articles, well, back when nobody knew who I was or was reading my <laughs> stuff, um, I wrote an article uh, called something like um, five or six life lessons we can all learn from the Great British Baking Show. I think you call it Bake Off there? Is it just called Bake Off? The Great British Bake Off, yes. Yeah. Here, it's the the Great British Baking Show in the U.S. Um, (laughs) And I love your Bake Off uh, because it is meritocratic. It is the ultimate example, right? It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, your age, race, sexuality, any of that. You're there because of one thing. You're a good enough baker to be in the tent. And from here, may the best baker win. And and what does what do we get when we set up that meritocratic system? Will we get people creating more and more impressive and delicious works of edible art and learning from each other in the process? Right. And the and I think it's such a good model. It's a lovely analogy. I love that. I love that idea of the bake-off. Because Again, it's going back to, I know this, this is the problem with um, 
critical race theory or critical social justice is that it it's illiberal and it doesn't believe in the, the very th- I mean it doesn't seem to have a very healthy view of human nature it doesn't seem to understand human nature and I think if you give people equal opportunities you know give them equal opportunities and then they can thrive and okay so maybe some people do need um who are a little more help than others, and and perhaps they can get that in school or or in, in their educational. But you know, ultimately, it is giving people the opportunity and then seeing how they thrive. And and I think the Bake Off is a brilliant example of meritocracy. That I'm going to take that one. I like that one. Well said. And it's so accessible if you want it. It's like yeah. I could decide tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Screw all this podcasting, therapy, consulting. You know what? I want to be a baker. That's what I want to do now. I could decide that tomorrow and yeah. I could make a point every day of practicing my baking skills. Yeah. Unless I am dirt poor and I don't have ingredients to work with. In yeah. which case, still in a meritocratic system, I mm. do, I would say that a meritocratic system incentivizes people doing good. Why? Because if you do good for others, if you set up a charity Mm. that, um, let's say, provides job skills training to homeless youth Mm. um, in a meritocratic system, you are rewarded for that. Mm. People people look well upon one another. If you demonstrate that you have a generous character, Mm. um, that you are here to solve problems and create Mm. a more just world for everyone— in a meritocratic system, people are going to love that, and you will be rewarded for that too. So I do think that meritocracy can create more um, equality and well-being for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you talked about CRT oversimplifying human nature, and I wanted to branch into that a little bit more. I was thinking mm-hmm. about you know some of the other content that you and CTA members have created. By the way, in case I haven't mentioned, CTA now has a podcast, the CTA podcast. I'm putting in a plug for putting the full title in the podcast so people can tell which CTA it is because there's a lot of things with that acronym. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, I think about this idea that, um, that there's this, this, um, original sin of Mm. racism that, people must be perpetually condemned to trying to root out within themselves. Now, on the one hand, there's an irredeemable nature to that original sin to the point where if you are white or if you otherwise fall into some so-called privileged demographic that is um, on one of the bad guys, there's really no amount of atoning and self-scrutiny you could possibly do. Um, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. That's why so many kids who are growing up with this stuff end up taking mm-hmm. shelter in the trans identity, right? Because, okay, you know, there's nothing I can do to completely atone for my original sin of whiteness, but at least I can be trans that way and I'm, I'm impressed a minority. I deserve mm-hmm. to be protected and coddled rather than at- attacked and criticized. So mm-hmm. CRT certainly incentivizes people as identifying as mentally ill or identifying mm-hmm. as trans or things like that. But I also mm-hmm. think there's this component to CRT oversimplifying human nature, as you mentioned, that I wanted to look at, which is the fantasy that that evil or that whatever is uh, corrupt or the shadow or shameful about human nature could ever be eradicated by such a simple process. I mean, on the one hand, 
you're always chasing that carrot and you can never actually fully eradicate that original sin. But on the other hand, it oversimplifies sin, evil, and the shadow of human nature into this one thing called racism or bigotry or fill-in-the-blank phobia, whatever it is. And, and that's in some ways, although I think it's it's a cynical worldview, it's also a naively, naively optimistic one in some ways. I don't think it's optimistic in practice, but I think it's it's a lovely but infantile fantasy that evil is really that simple. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, that's a really interesting idea, Stephanie, which I must admit I hadn't really considered. But but it's true, isn't it, that racism, as far as CRT is concerned, is the only evil. Um, and as, as Jonathan Haidt points out, there is um, this idea that people, the world is populated by people who are good or evil is such a simplistic one. And it's, it's one of his great untruths. It, I think if you look at it from an evolutionary perspective, it's kind of inbuilt in a way, isn't it? This idea that we are all, I suppose use the word prejudiced, against things that we don't understand or things that are different to us, people who are different to us. We are hardwired to look for threat. That's what human beings do to keep ourselves safe. If we see somebody in a room who looks different to us, then we're going to pay attention to it because that's how we're hardwired. doesn't necessarily mean we're going to make judgments about that person. But I do wonder whether this complete focus on racism as being the only evil um, is, is a misguided one, isn't it? Because we miss all the other things that could be evil about ourselves. And there is also the, the, the question of the shadow, which you keep bringing up, which I am really interested in. What is the shadow of the proponents of critical race theory, do you think? Where, what do you think their shadow is? What are they kind of hiding behind, do you think? Okay, I, to name a few. Um, narcissism. Mm -hmm. um, the, and as part of that, there's, there's sort of a delusion of grandeur, uh, a fantasy mm -hmm. of being better than everyone in history. You know, this fantasy that if I had existed during the time of slavery, I know I would have been fighting with a good, but it's like, you know, your actions demonstrate that you're actually going with the thing du jour. Like that's, mm -hmm. you, your, your actions demonstrate that you are towing the party line, that you are saying the popular thing of your day and age. So that does not actually convince me that you would have been one of the ones fighting for the unpopular thing in the past. Um, so I think there's there's that fantasy, there's, there's a glibness, there's a real, um, lack of compassion in places where compassion is claimed. But beyond that, there's um, some some ugly emotions like mm -hmm. jealousy. Mm -hmm. um, I believe the word is schadenfreude, right? There's, there's mm -hmm. sort of um, a sadistic pleasure yeah. in seeing others suffer Yeah, that I have, um, I feel like I've personally encountered that form of evil mm -hmm. very mm -hmm. close up. Mm. And and from a distance as well, the sort of I've seen a glibness, uh, and a, a glee in witnessing others being punished through these witch hunting rituals. Mm. So I think there's a sadism, mm. and mm. and that that sadism is is primal, and it, it can come from another a, a number of places in people's individual lives, but 
the desire to see others punished, um, the desire yeah. to hurt and to take away, and also yeah. I forget the term for it, but you know, um, th there's there's science behind this. Maybe you can help me come up with the, the terms I'm looking for here. But you know how um, I have a quote on my therapy website by Pema Chodron that compassion can only exist between equals. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, when when it comes to the perception of unequal power dynamics, um, which is baked in to CRT. Um, mm -hmm. If you see someone as less than you, as having less, uh, you you can feel pity and you can mistake that as compassion, but it's not truly compassion in my view, right? No. It's, it's pity or scorn or disgust. Mm -hmm. And then if you see someone as having more power than you, you also, uh, we do not have the instinct to have compassion for those who we view as more powerful than us, whether wealthy or beautiful or... Uh, whatever it is, um, our instinct is to tear that person down off their pedestal. When we see someone on a pedestal, we want to knock them down. And so I think that CRT is really based in, you know, all of this categorization of everyone has some sort of hierarchical position of mm -hmm. their their unique combination of privilege and oppression according to intersectionality. Mm -hmm. it, it destroys the fabric of compassion. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's the shadow, the shadow of compassion. The false compassion is the narcissistic compassion of pity. Mm -hmm. And along with that, the shadow emotion of disgust mm -hmm. um, and contempt, um, mm -hmm. jealousy, mm -hmm. you know, and I think you see this if you look at the micro expressions in people like Dylan Mulvaney, who I almost hate to give more press to um, because he's <laughs> just all over everything these days. Mm -hmm. But um but if you read the facial expressions of someone like a Dylan Mulvaney or a Jeffrey Marsh, first mm -hmm. of all, you see very hist histrionic, sort of hysterical, mm -hmm. exaggerated, dramatized looks. Mm -hmm. um, but beneath that, you see disgust and contempt. And I think those are uh, the primary emotions driving a lot of this, as well as jealousy um, and a desire to, take, to tear others down and a delight in their demise. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. I, do you know, it's such a relief to me, Stephanie, to hear somebody voicing this because this is the feeling as I've, the more I've looked into this and writing the chapter and since writing the chapter, this is, these are the kind of feelings that come to me, the kind of words that come to me, punishment, as you say, mm. the, the, the kind of disgust and the belittling of people. Um, I think I, I can give you a maybe a sort of concrete example of this um, in the UK, and you probably have found this with, with Trump and the election of Trump. When we had, um, we voted to leave the European Union, uh, there was an outcry by psychologists that this was a racist act and that there would be an increase in racism because the people who had voted for Brexit were doing so because they were anti-immigration and they were racist and, and all of these kind of tropes. 
And I do feel that you know, quite a lot of what what is is happening now in in, in our country is is trying is payback time. You know, we're we're going to label these people who voted to leave the European Union as racist, and they are bad people, and they need to learn a lesson, and they need to learn about their white privilege. And a lot of it, when a lot of the reading that I've done around this, it this comes through, um, and it makes me feel uncomfortable because I think. What have these people done to you? <laughs> Just ordinary mm-hmm. folk who wanted to get some sovereignty back. Um, but the the it's like a sort of overreaction. And I, I think the other thing that troubles me deeply, Stephanie, is, is the reaction towards people of colour who dissent from this view. And the slurs that are are thrown at, you know, that they are race traitors or they're white supremacist adjacent and um, so what does that say? I mean, that isn't compassionate towards the people that you're trying to support and, and give uh, help to. Um, it, it, it doesn't add up. It's so contradictory. And um, so there are so many aspects of critical race theory that I find uh, you know, really, really troubling, not least the kind of ways of thinking that it encourages. Um, so the whole blaming and shaming of people who don't agree with you or the, or the wrong skin colour. Um, you know, you, you, you just get this sense of, is this, I mean, I think this is where I worry about the kind of seeing this in a therapy setting. You know, when as soon as somebody comes through the door and they happen to be the wrong skin colour, uh, they're going to get a moral lecture about the privilege that they've got. And, you know, that is not therapeutic. That is not the role of a therapist to to make these kind of assumptions about somebody just on the basis of immutable characteristics. Um, And it does feel punishing. And I I worry about how this is going to manifest. I mean, I I presume in the States, this is already a problem, isn't it, where you've got therapist activists who are seeing clients, judging them on their political beliefs or um, many other things, whether they're white and men or whatever they might be. Is is this a problem in the States? I'm sure it is. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, it happened to me once when I sought out uh, a therapist uh, who mm-hmm. I just wanted to talk to to find out if she would either be a good therapist or a good supervisor mm-hmm. for me. I, I didn't need supervision at that point. I was licensed, mm-hmm. but I, mm-hmm. um, you know, someone to consult with. And mm-hmm. um, when I when I was seeking, I was, one of the reasons I sought her out was because she was bicultural, because I was at the time working through my own matters of identity pertaining to being of mixed cultural background myself. Mm -hmm. Um, But what she did is she took one look at me and made assumptions Mm -hmm. about me um, being white and what my motivations must be for wanting to talk to someone of Mm -hmm. a bicultural background. And I got shamed and ridiculed for that at at a consultation. Um, and that that took me some unpacking to do afterward. That was very disturbing. She was, you know, a, I believe a clinical psychologist. I believe she had a doctorate um, and was a supervisor. Um, so I've seen this. But I wonder, you know, when, when I sort of brought this part of the conversation and I, I introduced the idea of is it is it naive to to hold on to this fantasy that evil is really that simple? Right. And, and because if you oversimplify it, then mm. you're off the hook 
for as far as critical thinking and self-examination go. You don't you don't have to think of yourself as someone who could potentially be duped or who potentially has some, you know, let's say evil impulses or or shadow impulses within you. Yeah. Um because you know you're on the right side of history and I wonder what it what it might all be distracting us from. It seems like a lot of smoke and mirrors. It seems like this wild goose chase that, you know, mm-hmm. everyone is so fixed on rooting out this one particular sin of racism with the idea that if you just wipe out this so-called white supremacist or colonizer mentality, mm-hmm. then then we'll live in a utopia. Mm-hmm. And and it's like, if only it were that simple. I mean, I think it's a very cynical worldview as, as your mm-hmm. book, you know, also implies you see the same way. But, you know, even if we could eradicate racism, I mean, how many people's worlds would fall apart to to learn that we, in fact, still had to contend with yeah. things in our human nature that are that are ugly and destructive, mm-hmm. um, that that we can still be at war with ourselves and with one another, and that we we can still deceive and trick and mock and ridicule, and in fact, that th- those are the habits of mind we've been practicing all along that we've been doing this witch hunt. That's right. And then and, it and looks for a new target. Exactly, Stephanie. So it will not cease, will it? You know, even if we got to that utopia, it will not cease because they'll find something else that they don't like, that they want to dismantle, that they want to disrupt, that they want to do away with. Because this is the way this um, ideology works. It's it's never satisfied. It it will go on until it eats its own, and that's that's quite clear. People who have been part of it and and find their way out of it are cancelled, you know, they're abused and so on. So there is no end in sight. Mm-hmm. So there is a naivety about it, isn't there? But it, it's to use the word naivety is not quite right because that's a nice light little word. It's it is cynical and uh it's really worrying to find this in the world of therapy where you would hope that people who are vulnerable and have mental health problems can actually come and see somebody who in good faith wants to help them, you know, is not going to judge them on the basis of, uh, you know, whether they're the wrong sex or the wrong colour. They're actually going to be open-minded and non-judgmental and um, act with them in good faith to try and assess what their difficulties are and try and find a way of helping them to overcome their mental health difficulties. That's what we're trained to do, isn't it? That's what we do as psychotherapists. We're not trying to change the world. We're not trying to socially engineer society. And I think what what troubles me also about this is that, you know, a lot of this is going under the radar. I think there are clinicians who are, whether they believe it or not, thinking that they're doing traditional therapy. Um, I mean, I actually found, I, you may have come across this yourself, Stephanie, I actually found a uh, a quote from um, somebody who is clearly a, an activist therapist on Twitter, who says, I'd love to have clients who identify systematic oppression as something worth focusing on in therapy, but that's not what brings people in the door. Says it all, doesn't it, really? So of disappointed. Just trying to enforce your worldview on people who really don't want it. Thank well, you. And, that, and and I also hear 
a lack of skill. This person has been mm -hmm. trained as an activist at the expense mm -hmm. of being trained as a therapist. So mm -hmm. they know what to do if someone who if someone comes in sharing their worldview. They mm -hmm. know to get angry and blame the systems of oppression with your client, and then your client feels seen and heard, and you feel like you're, you've saved mm -hmm. them. But That's they don't cool. know what to do with someone who wants to take responsibility for making changes in their life because maybe this isn't something they've learned or practiced yeah. themselves or maybe it's based on you know to to get to the root of the problem you have to help people with the secondary gain and that's a concept that has come up on this podcast before people have asked me to talk more about it so yeah. carol can i ask you to help me define secondary gain well, I think I can give a, an example of how it used to operate when I worked um, in the hospital in clinical health psychology. And so you would have a client who would be really quite vulnerable and never really be able to come to terms with their illness. And they would tend to end up hospitalized with increasing frequency. And I remember talking to the medical team about this and they would be perplexed. We've tried everything we can to get this person better, but they still keep turning up and needing a hospital bed. And I said, well, what are they actually gaining from this? Well, yeah, they're comfortable. They're being looked after. They're getting a good food. You know, they're, they're getting lots of company and attention. When they leave the hospital, they lose all of that. They're, they're living in some, some horrible little shack somewhere um, without anybody to look after them and they can't afford to, you know, to go out and get food or they can't actually go out and get food because they're too sick. So th this, is, this was my understanding. Well, that's one example, isn't it, of, of a kind of secondary gain, that, that you kind of you get something from being unwell. You get something from being vulnerable. And there's no incentive to actually get better and to get well because you get all your needs met by not being well. Does that make and sense? You, absolutely. And you described mm -hmm. a sort of a classic example that portrays a stark difference between the reality of remaining unwell and getting taken care of mm -hmm. and being independent and having to do for yourself. And I would say to a lesser degree that secondary gain is implicated to some extent or another in almost all mental health conditions for which someone mm -hmm. seeks counseling. Because if there were not any benefit, if there were no secondary gain mm -hmm. to the symptom or disease, however you conceptualize it, the unwanted behavior, then they wouldn't need therapy. All you would have to do is say, I want to make this change in my life mm -hmm. and then make the change in your life. There are mm. countless resources for helping a person make change. If you want to improve your diet, there are a thousand different books you could read on mm. what constitutes a healthy diet. You're going to get different mm. opinions. But the point is that if you know the change you want to make and there's mm. nothing standing in your way and there's nothing that you're getting out of staying where you are, mm. then why on earth do you need a therapist for that? Well, that's a really interesting idea. I mean, I suppose I, I would say that in terms of the people that I saw, uh, a lot of people actually benefited from actually be, um, having their awareness um, heightened about the kind of cognitive biases that they may have. And, and how would you know about that? I mean, you might read, actually, you probably could read about it in a book, to be fair, Stephanie, there's so many books on cognitive behaviour therapy. But there is something about the interaction with 
a, a psychotherapist, isn't there? That that nurturing, that sense of being enveloped by somebody who cares about you. You know, maybe there is. It's going back to that attachment thing again, isn't it? Because there, there clearly is that. The uh, I've been reading a lot about you know sort of other approaches to to therapy than cognitive behaviour therapy, and reading a lot of Avinya Lom and people of that that sort, and just thinking about the the way that we play out those early relationships in the therapy room. You go and see a therapist, and you begin to behave in the way that you do, you know, the patterns of behavior that you have with other people. And that's what tells the therapist often what the difficulties are, isn't it? So yeah, it's a really interesting idea that perhaps there, there is always going to be some sort of secondary gain. Even if you went into the therapy room saying, I don't really want to be here, but, you know, you've got the expertise to help me. Just mm-hmm. trying to think about, but, but then often people don't come. If they don't want to come, they just don't come, do they? They DNA. So... Well, I've I've experienced people, uh, my patients having a such a wide range of ways that they relate to the therapeutic process itself. Mm. I've I've had people come to me saying that going to therapy feels like going to the dentist. Dentist, it's a necessary evil. It's a painful thing that you torture yourself through because it's good for you. That's how they think of it. I don't really particularly enjoy working in that framework, but you know that's that's what they're telling me about their resistance to vulnerability and. Um, and then there are people who it's the highlight of their week. But secondary gain can even apply in situations like that. And and this is where I think classical training is so beneficial. And I wonder about the, the trainings that these activist therapists are going through, whether they're learning about mm-hmm. things like this. Like, for instance, Absolutely. I have had patients who I came to believe were clinging on to me mm-hmm. as the one source of nurturance in their life at the expense of making improvements in their life. And mm. I consider it like a form of emotional anorexia. So someone who had significant childhood emotional neglect, someone who's accustomed to being like, um, the image that comes to mind is like a, a cactus or a camel, you know, hoarding what little love in the form of water, metaphorically, mm. you can for miles and miles and miles through the desert. Mm. Um, you know, there are people who have grown so accustomed to having such an emotionally impoverished life, if not a materially impoverished life sometimes as well, that when they get that little bit of love that comes through me in the therapeutic relationship, that is their desert oasis. And they're accustomed to the desert. And so my role in their life, and I've noticed this play out over the long-term course of therapy with certain patients, Mm -hmm. I come to realize this person is coming to me as their weekly or biweekly watering hole so that they can t- continue trudging through the desert. They don't want to get out of the desert. Yeah. And I have uh, had to quite painfully and painstakingly um, mm-hmm. remove myself as a therapist mm-hmm. in situations like that because I realized that their attachment to me as the one source of love in their life was mm-hmm. keeping them from making more radical changes. Like, for example, um, leaving a toxic marriage or workplace mm-hmm. environment or mm-hmm. pursuing because I, I don't I don't want to be the one source of love in anybody's life. No, I want to different. help someone have a life that is abundant yeah. with love. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely right. Yeah. That isn't your function as a therapist, is it? To just be there as the watering hole that people come to every week and and yet yet nothing happens. Nothing actually improves in their life. 
you know, your role is to help them, you know, to do whatever's necessary to begin to sort their life out and be able to cope with that and those difficulties. So, yeah, I mean, I, I've also seen people in the past who you get to a point where you realise there's no real change going on here, and yet they seem to love coming along to see you, which is very flattering. But as you say, this is not your role. Your role is to help people to, to learn how to cope with that and how to, to look at life and whatever the difficulties they, they have and find a way of um, you know, restoring their mental health you're doing the things that they need to do. But I think you're absolutely right about what are therapists being taught in courses now? And, and certainly from the, the report that I did in the UK into UK clinical psychology training courses was alarming because the, the, the training courses are beginning to, I mean, they are still, many of them are still teaching basic skills that are required, but more and more they seem to be encouraging social justice activism and, and moving away from the idea of the person as an individual towards the collective, you know, which is not therapeutic at all. And also trying to diminish their expertise. There, there's an, there was an idea, you know, one of the freedom of information requests we had, in fact, more, more than one, there were several that were talking about trying to degrade the idea of the expert. Now I know that, you know, Okay, I may be an expert in helping people with their their problems like depression or anxiety. The person who comes to see me is an expert in themselves, and I absolutely accept that. But to say that those people, because of their lived experience, are somehow more expert than I am, I mean, really? <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't go to a cardiologist, would you, who who just said, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert, actually. You know, I'm just a you're the expert. In That's you. where we again. I want the best cardiologist, meritocracy. I want the best cardiologist, the best therapist. I want the expert. I certainly want the best pilot flying the plane. When the stakes, you know, the higher the stakes are, the more all of this yeah. falls apart because these are luxury yeah. beliefs. Um, exactly. I'm just realizing that we're out of time. So, um, Carol, this has been a delightful conversation. Uh, I know you're not. Uh, you're not really on any social media. No, no, I'm not. But you can find me at criticaltherapyantidote.org and don'tdivideus.com. And you can read my chapter in the book if you get the book. Wonderful. <laughs> I'll make sure that the book I is hold, linked in the show notes. If I hold it up, can you see that? Oh, yeah, that's Hold great. You can go ahead and put that a little closer to the screen. Oh, there we go. How about Fire that? Up. Yeah, Cynical Fire Therapies, up. Perspectives on the Anti-Therapeutic Nature of Critical Social Justice, edited by Dr. Val Thomas. <laughs> Thank Carol, it's been such a pleasure. Much. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a really delightful journey. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at SomeTherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. 
If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.